0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to episode 17 of Daffy's Roundtable. And for today's podcast, we're going back to frogs. My guest for today is the host of the Amphibicast podcast, uh, which I have to admit is a podcast that I've been pretty hooked on recently. Uh, Dan brings on some incredible guests to talk about some interesting papers on dart frogs and all things amphibians. And for today's episode, we're actually going to touch on some of those papers from past Amphibicast episodes. We're also going to discuss Dan's collection and his success breeding epitobates, and what he does for tadpole nutrition and all that kind of stuff. Um, and finally, we're going to discuss a species that we have not discussed before on the podcast, the Vietnamese mossy frog. So without further ado, please help me. Welcome Dan, the host of Amphibicast. Hello,
1: how are you? I'm doing very well. How are you doing? Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on. It's Thank a you so much for coming show.
0: on. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm really excited to do this one. Thank you so much. Um, so I'm just going to kick it right off. Can you tell us a little bit, first of all, how you got into the hobby, um, and what kind of the species you're keeping?
1: Okay. Well, ugh, that's a long story. Um,
0: <laughs> it always is.
1: I'll, I'll try to go through, I'll try to go through it quickly for you as in terms of the hobby, um, the, the definition of the hobby has changed over the decades because it used to kind of just be the exotics hobby, meaning when I was a kid back in the eighties, the you know, all the, all exotics are generally lumped together. You went to the pet store, you had a couple of species of tarantula, you had a couple of species of snakes, a couple of species of maybe some frogs or whatnot, and that's what you had. So it was pretty much a different hobby than, than it is now. So nowadays, like the, the frog hobby in particular has become a very, very niche environment where people are, and even other than that, people are, are devout gecko enthusiasts, um, you know, certain species of micro gecko, certain species of dart frog. Some people only work with pumilio. So the hobby has, has changed. But when I first got into it, like I said, it was a much more general type of situation. Uh, I was probably about 12 years old. So this has been like like the late 80s, like early 90s. <clears throat> I'm 42 now. So it's been about 30. I've been keeping animals for about 30 years. Wow. And I, when I was a kid, I started off with keeping newts and salamanders back when you could just keep pretty much whatever you wanted. I started out with things like eastern newts western newts and all all sorts of different species from southeast asia that you're probably never going to see again that some of them i don't even know what the common name let alone the scientific name um axolotls i kept back then this was before axolotls became the phenomenon they are today um my first large reptile i mean i kept amphibians before him the first large reptile i guess you could say i kept the green iguana um which were really popular back then but they I know people are into them now and that's fine it just at the time and up until now, I personally don't think that they make the best choices. but in the 80s, the 90s that was what you had available. Uh, I, I kept agree. I kept animals on and off throughout my life. Um, you know I, I went to, I got, I worked, I went to school locally. I never really went away anywhere. So I always I always had something. Um, the only thing I didn't have in my house growing up was was snakes. so that was the first thing that I got when I, when, when I was uh, ultimately on my own um fast forward to now 2022 i got more serious into things again around 2016 there were times where i walked away i didn't keep as many animals Uh, i always had a i've had the same few animals for years like my california king snake i've had for 20 years so he's been with me a long a long time and um i think i think he's the oldest i I had a golden gecko for about 15 years He, he he died you know about um probably like seven or eight years ago, but I had him for a long time too. But um, around 2016, I, I got back into it. I made some some lifestyle changes and I, I wanted to do, do things differently. I, I wanted to you know, have my life go in a more productive direction. And this just seemed like a good fit. It was always a comfort zone to me. It was always a place that I felt like I belonged. It was a thing that always just brought me a tremendous amount of, of, of enjoyment. And I wanted to kind of reevaluate the way I was keeping things and rather than getting in that bug where you keep everything, you know, you want one of, you want one of everything, right? I, I kind of stopped focusing on that mentality and really more just putting a lot of resources and development into what I already had. I wanted to build a nice enclosures. I wanted to build zoo style enclosures, or at least what I thought would be zoo style enclosures, impressive displays. And I, I really wanted to investigate as deeply as I could into the husbandry, of the species that I kept and when I was younger, I, I kept dart frogs a couple of times in the early 2000s with, with not a tremendous amount of success. I, I kept erratus around maybe 2003, 2004. But um, I got back into it, and I really wanted to focus primarily on, on dark frogs. I mean, amphibians in general, but especially on dark frogs just because of their, their appeal. They always had this appeal to me. They were one of the first frogs that I ever saw in National Geographic back when National Geographic was a magazine. Yeah. we got an issue in the 80s and it had Pamelio in it, which at the time it wasn't even Ufaga Pamelio, it was still Dendrobates, something or other. And I remember thinking to myself, these frogs are amazing. It would be amazing to be able to keep these things. And then fast forward now, uh, I I don't keep Pamelio now, but I have kept Pamelio. And I've kept many different species of dart frogs. And it's just, for me, it's just a good fit. It, It fits well into my life. I enjoy it. I enjoy the aesthetics behind it. I enjoy the I guess you could call it the discipline that it brings because it does it. I mean, it's not exceedingly difficult, but, um, it's like tending to a big garden, you know, with the plants and and the frogs and just keeping everything up and, you know, in, in decent working order. So that's that. Um, and (laughs) that was kind of a long convoluted story, but I've been keeping animals for such a long time. Uh, currently, um, I, I I have a few. I mean, I keep the majority of the species. I, I keep our dart frogs, but I have a couple of odds and ends here and there. I mean, I'm just looking around my room here. Um, dart frog wise, I have three Dendrobates, tinctorius Patricia. I have two Azurias. I have um, I have three uh, orange blackfoot tarabillas that I got from uh, from Julio uh, Julio Rodriguez by way of uh, Tesoros. I think those three are my new favorites. That's awesome. I've got um, two Turbulus Mint, which are a little, well, not little. They're like my big monsters. I've got a group of Epipeda anthonia over here. You're probably going to hear them calling. I, I've lost track of how many of them I have. I have a lot of tadpoles and grow out now, so they just, they are like, they breed like crazy. I have um, three, I'm sorry, I have four Phylobates Bicolor uh, two of which are my second oldest frogs. Those I've had since about 2016. So those I've had a long time, which is, I mean, to me, eight years is nothing, but I guess it's a long time for the frogs. Yeah. Um, I have an, I have my Oya Park, who is my oldest dart frog. He's older than the, um, older than the bicolors. Um, there's a couple other odds and ends. I've got three Thelioderma corticale, the Vietnamese mossy frogs, and, um, i'm also in, i'm into arachnids as well i've got the seven tarantulas i've got um i'm trying to think what i've got now um excuse me some somapius Armenia, um brachypelma it's it's the brachypelma genus is weird it went from Hemorii to something else so i'm 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 not quite sure which one i have if i have smithy or hemorii. um
0: Right, that only happened a few years ago, correct?
1: Yeah, it did. So, and I've I've also got a, t, a t- vaggins. So the the te- the taxonomy behind tarantulas and whatnot it constantly gets reevaluated. So you might have a, a genus that, that gets broken up into, you know, they'll, they'll create a new genus or they'll move things around. So that's always a thing. Uh, right. I've got an I've got a uh, an agenticulata. Um, a couple a couple other odds and ends. It's hard to tell without looking because I've got I've got so much going on here. Uh, I've got the two blood pythons, a male and a female, T negative albino. I'm not a big morph person. I just like them because they're pretty to look at. The co- yeah, yeah, and the and the king snake. And uh, oh, I forgot. I've got um, I've got a Ceratophrys arida, was a Brazilian horned frog, and um, Cranwelli or eye, whatever they are now. The Cranwells, um, you know the usual pac-man frog, Pac-Man I guess Man frog yeah. yeah and i've got a have got a white street frog hanging out there i've always had white street frogs i've had them consistently for the past 25 years i've always had one or two
0: that's awesome that that just produced a lot more questions to ask you <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i'm i know it's a it's it's a lot it's a lot so
0: no no that's awesome um as you can see i also have c- quite a bit but what well um before we before we get back into the frogs um do you breed the pair of uh, the blood pythons?
1: No, I don't. I I have a male and a female. I I would like to get clutches out of them, and but I'm not rushing it. I um, okay. I know that the just because I keep frogs doesn't make me that great with snakes. I um, my philosophy with them is. I, I I'm not trying to rush them. I mean, they're they're a few years old, but I mean, I'm sure that if they were raised under different conditions, they probably could be massive and ready to breed right now. I don't like to do that. I've had better luck with snakes in the long term by not rushing their growth. And I've spoken to some other people, and I've heard some other people who, who've worked with with particularly pythons and. They can, they can get obese, they can get obese and it for can sure. compromise their health. And people don't realize that just because they eat, but, um, the, the male's a bit of a finicky eater. That was the other thing that kind of compounded a little bit. He only takes fresh killed, which is a little bit difficult. And I know that that's kind of a difficult subject for some people, but, um, you know, look, that's, that's the way it is. So it's, it's a little bit, I, I can't just thaw something out for him, no, for sure. you know, on a Tuesday night, like I would with the big girl. So that's also been a little bit of a factor is just, um. You know, you can only get live every so often. You know, what I mean, whereas the big girl, she's on a little bit more of a, a reasonable schedule.
0: But frozen thought die just. Yeah,
1: I, I always prefer yeah. that. I think it's much easier. It's it's just it's much better. But I've kept a lot of animals, like I said, and, and certain animals just have their quirks, and it's been a it's been a process. I'm sure people listening will have suggestions and whatnot. Uh, I've tried all different things, and um, unfortunately, this is just the way it is. We're we're every day we're working to switch over, but. Again, animals are like people. They're different. Some of them just have different, different tastes, different personalities.
0: No, for sure. And fresh kill is one step closer to frozen thought So
1: correct. Uh, there you
0: have it. Right. Uh, okay. Awesome. So back to the frogs. Uh, you mentioned mm-hmm. you were, uh, I heard this on one of your episodes before when you were back keeping them back in the day, a lot of the stuff was coming in was uh, more wild caught and the hobby was kind of uh, dealt a little differently. Um, Can you maybe get into a little bit of how the things have changed over the years and how the hobby has um, grown? And like, I know that a lot more things are being captive bred now. So maybe besides Mm -hmm. the fact that um, more captive bred frogs, what are some of the things that you found um, changed, maybe for the better or the worse?
1: Well, I think that, I mean, obviously there's people that have been in the hobby longer than I have and who would have a more intimate understanding of how the hobby progressed from the late 90s into the 2000s, because like I said, I didn't really start keeping them seriously until about 2016. I would had them on and off, but I do remember very early on in, in about 1995, I worked at a local pet store, which was a small chain here out here in New York metropolitan area. And, um, there was a guy that was, um, he, he, used to bring his daughter for karate. She took a karate class. It was a couple of, a couple of storefronts up and he would come in and he would talk to me and my friend who worked there. And, um, at this point, it was kind of like the Wild West. You could get really like whatever you wanted because people imported so heavily. And the store that I worked in, we imported pretty much everything. You got a price list and then whatever came in in the import, you you might get it, you might not. We got a lot of odd frogs and the frogs generally didn't do well because they were all imported. A lot of them came in pretty beat up. But this guy here, he asked, he was talking to us one day and he said, by the way, he goes, do you guys want to get poison arrow frogs? And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, how is that possible? You know what I mean? I'm like, well, first of all, won't they, won't they kill me? And, and then, and then he's like, he goes, no, no, no. He goes, they lose the toxicity and the species that he was bringing in. I think it was Tinctorius. It was probably Patricia. Patricia's was one of the first locales that came in around that time. And I just remember him saying, yeah, it's not that bad. You just have to feed them lots of pinheads and you have to keep them really humid and what, which at the time was really, was terrible advice, but it was really intimidating for me. But, that mindset at the time, I felt like that mindset carried over for a long time, at least for someone like me, because dealing with captive bred nowadays is, is, is so much different than it was dealing with wild caught. Because when you dealt with a wild caught animal, especially an amphibian, if it made its way from wherever it was imported from, whether it was South America, or whether it was Africa, or Southeast Asia, or whatever, that's a long, long ride. And they still, you know, they still had to go through fish and wildlife. They still had to go through, uh, you know, customs, whatever it is, they had to go through all that. So between the point where an animal was collected by someone in the wild, put in a container and then shipped wherever it went across the globe and then got to the store, it could have been a month. So a lot of these animals came in very, very fragile and in very poor condition.
0: Already stressed out.
1: Correct. Correct. And and that was a big deterrent. In fact, that was why a lot of the reptile stores at the time didn't offer any kind of uh, live guarantee on amphibians. So you could buy a frog, bring it home. And then it would, it would be dead the next day and you wouldn't get a, refu- a refund on it. So it was, it was intimidating. It was, it was very different than we didn't have the same understanding that we had now. It was kind of like stumbling around in the dark. We, we knew what we were feeling for, but we hadn't quite visualized it yet. So fast forward years and years and years, when I started to keep amphibians more actively again, I realized that people are working with species in captivity now that I never thought I would say, I, I never thought I would see a frog of familio and um again same thing with premilion when premilio came into the hobby they were intimidating because they were obligate egg eaters and people weren't really sure how to get them to reproduce successfully in captivity and people tried different things like people tried like taking chicken egg yolks and using that to try and feed the tadpoles outside of the the, parent, the parental care it's a learning experience but nowadays i feel like if you can get a quality animal that's been captive bred especially for it doesn't even necessarily have to be more than like an F1. It could, you know, you, you, you're you fine with an F1. Um, anything that's been captive bred in captivity generally is just better suited to life in captivity. Whereas the wild caught frogs were, were difficult. And I, I, I would not encourage anyone, nor would I have any interest in, in wild caught, but um, it does happen, especially with, with, with again, like with the blue jeans locale, blue jeans are, are Common like crazy. You can find them every everywhere in their in their you know in their normal location. But no one breeds them here in the U.S. because it's cheaper to bring them in in massive imports and sell them off. In fact, the episode you did with with uh, Alex yeah. Alex Menke Alex did a, Alex did a wonderful job explaining all that in terms of just you know how people need to work with certain species more so, and then the value of captive bred individuals as opposed to wild caught. But hopefully, wild caught will go away completely you know, whether that's, um, and when I say wild caught, I don't necessarily mean imported. There are people who work with species in their country of origin, very, very successfully and responsibly. Right. So I want to make the distinction between wild caught and, you know, a, a, what's the term people like to use? Like, like sustainably sourced. Cause those yeah. are two different things.
0: hundred percent. Yeah. I heard you touch up on that a little bit with the, um, in the Nick Stacy episode on Art Lopez mm-hmm. on how they're kind of, only being bred in ecuador and uh put in yeah. like a sustainable way and now that's uh so it's definitely an interesting thought uh mm-hmm. for sure uh okay and then from all the species you keep for uh talking dart frog wise do mm-hmm. uh, you see there's a big difference between for example like the tinctorius and the epirobates, um both talking for, for example like do you find that dendrobates prefer climbing more than you find the epidibatts or um do epitobates prefer swimming more like did you, did you see the kind of direction of going to this question
1: <sighs> i notice a lot of different things and it's it's interesting because i don't think people really understand the extent to which that these these animals occupy similar niches but in these these vastly different geographical areas so i think a lot of us or not a lot of us, and I should say in the hobby, but I think a lot of people in general kind of tend to perceive that all these things live in the same spot, meaning you can just take like a riverboat up the Amazon and you're going to see
0: all of them next to each other. Yeah,
1: and it's it's not like that. So they do occupy different different areas. Uh, the, the tinctorious, they do seem to prefer being on the ground. They, they seem to prefer that. I find them on the ground the majority of the time, but they do climb. Uh, anybody who says dart frogs don't climb, I don't care what the species is, they'll climb. They will make yeah. use of every single inch of that tank. So giving That's them vertical places to climb to is always beneficial. But ha- habitat-wise, like from what I've learned from from wild tinctorius, the majority of them, the, the consensus generally seems to be that they're very, very heavy, like leaf litter types frogs. So uh, I make sure that they have a lot of leaf litter as opposed to any kind of uh, like a, I don't want to use water feature, but like my babies, they'll get by in like with like a little tiny water feature, and I'm not talking like an elaborate waterfall. I just mean like a small little corner of the tank that has some submergence grown in it, which is actually this tank, this tank behind me here. But I'm kind of letting it, um, kind of letting it dry out because I want to do away with that. But they'll inhabit areas that are closer to the water's edge, and they'll make a little bit more usage consistently of the vertical areas. So I'll find them on the ground, but I'm more likely to find them up nesting in the bromeliads and in little film caches and things like that that i have up high but it, it varies i mean i'll find my big fat patricia like up on top of a bromeliad at like the top of the, the top of the exoterra. it's right. just where she wants to go and just i see people say like oh you know what like i'm going to put these two species together because one only stays on the ground and one stays up no they're going to they're going to interact with each other because even if a tank is two feet, three feet tall, that's that's still a terrestrial enclosure. You okay. know, if you have a if you have a, a tank that's eight, nine, ten feet tall, then I could say, all right, that's legit arboreal. And you probably wouldn't see the two of them interact if that's the way it was. But they're gonna they're gonna go at wherever they want. But to answer your question, I will see the epipedia babies up higher. I'll see them make more use of the water feature. There also seem to be better swimmers because the tanks will kind of just press themselves up against the glass and just kind of like slide down into the into the water features but again that's why i don't keep them with water features so it 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 varies you know they'll they'll go wherever they want but most of the time i I like to treat tinctorius as more of a leaf litter species the epipedibetes they'll tolerate more of a water feature but
0: that's awesome i have two species of the uh, epipedibetes i just recently got them both the anchors and the tricolors okay um, the tricolors, is actually I just got them as tadpoles so it's still uh, growing out but I um, I now that you say a water feature I'd be interested to try water feature with one of the two setups and see if they just completely um, now do you pull that's that's actually do you pull the tadpoles out or do you leave them in um, well
1: they make uh, so many that I I do a combination of both. I let them do I let them do everything themselves. I let them do all the parental care and everything like that. I don't pull eggs. I let them just deposit into this uh, like a 16 ounce deli cup that I keep mm-hmm. in the vivarium. It's kind of sits under the misting nozzle so it'll get refreshed with clean water. And if I need to just do a little water change, I will but they'll deposit tadpoles in there and they'll they'll do pretty well considering they assuming they have the right nutrition, we'll get into that a little bit more. but yeah i have a, I have a group that I'm running communally. And I have, I had the first frog, but they, this clutch was from like November, end of November, right around Thanksgiving. And I have one that just po- kind of popped out of the water. I'm going to leave him in the, in the, uh, in the, in the, um, the tadpole bin for maybe another couple of days and then I'll move him to a grow out. But, yeah. uh, communal versus individual. It's a controversial topic, but f- for these guys, I'd say there's no problem with communal as long as you keep the water reasonably reasonably clean. I use a sponge filter. I have some pothos. I have some Java moss in there, just to keep it from turning into just um you know like a, just kind of like nasty stagnant water. Yeah. So that seems to work for me. I know a lot of other people who keep tinctorious communally and have good results. It, it really, I think it really depends on nutrition and the amount of space and resources that you give them because. I found that tadpoles will cannibalize in the absence of adequate protein. And a lot right. of the, the commercially available diets for tadpoles, well, I shouldn't say that. Let me rephrase it. I should say a lot of the commercial fish flake diets that people recommend for them, I don't think that that has enough. And w- what I started getting out was I had problems with my babies. They would go to, they would pop their legs out and then they would die. And then they were gone the next day because the other tadpoles just annihilated them. So I thought to myself, well, what's going on? I figured. You know what? Let me let me add something else. Let me think about what these things are actually coming into contact in the wild because they're not eating fish flakes in the wild. And I had a conversation with um, with uh, his name is Josh. He's on Instagram. He's Muddy Boots Peru. And Josh like has seen some really amazing things like in situ in Peru, and That's the awesome. all the stuff that ends up in these bromeliads and in these little breeding you know any place with tadpoles are. You've got dead bugs, you've got moss, you've got fungus, you've got all this stuff in there. And I wanted to add some protein. I added another protein source and I found that I got much more vigorous tadpole development They came out bigger and I got more of them than metamorphose. So that was, for me, that was the success with that species. I have transferred over to a more uh, protein-rich commercially available diet. I started using the Rapashi products. And I've had good success with that so far. I took th- I took that advice from another keeper as well, rather than trying to just figure it out on my own. Um, the Rapashi is like bar none. It's just it's a, it's a good product. I still supplement it with a little additional protein from another source, but all in all, I've been happy with that in terms of tadpole development.
0: That's awesome. Do you remember the names of the Rapashi products you're using?
1: Yes, it's the um, uh, what is that? The um, Soylent Green. Soylent Green. Okay. The Soylent Green, and I. Use a little bit of the morning wood, and believe it or not, I'll sprinkle some beardy buffet in there because the beardy buffet has the protein. That's the black soldier fly larvae,
0: yeah. And
1: that's what okay. that's what made the difference for me. the The problem with that is that when you add the heavy protein, the heavy animal protein sources, it tends to foul the water. So you got to be careful with that. that I, I messed up the changes. Yeah, I messed up the first time because I put too much of the beardy buffet in. And it, it's spoiled the water and I lost that clutch of tadpoles, but at least it gave me the impetus to try and try something different. And now I just realized, all right, I can't, I have to make sure the water quality is better.
0: No, for sure. And are you making it into a gel and breaking it up and giving them the cubes or are you just kind of sprinkling it in as a powder?
1: I'll do either one. I will, um, I'll make the, like, it's like a, like a, like a puck. I'll boil okay, up some water and yeah, it makes like it's like a little jello shot or something yeah. like that. And I'll put that in there. I just try to match it with the demand because if it sits there, it kind of disintegrates. But th- that's worked really well. I-, I picked that Troy actually gave me that idea. I was watching how he did his communals with Tintoris, and I was asking him about it. and yeah, same thing. He just makes that rapashi puck and then the tapels will go in there and gravitate towards it. Um, but I will sprinkle some in from time to time just to, just to vary it up a bit. But I mean, ultimately it all ends up inside them. So I don't really think it matters, but right.
0: And now how often are you feeding them
1: as much as they'll eat? eat. I found that people say that tadpoles don't eat that much. And I mean, again, that could be a subjective term, but I, I, they eat a lot.
0: They yeah. Do. I, Okay. You know, well,
1: you, no, you tell me what, what, like, what have so your experiences been?
0: I, I found, yeah. So I found that i like, I was told the same thing at watching some videos and going through all that people saying feed a couple of times a week. I find that if I find, if I feed <clears throat> daily, they'll eat daily and they almost look more robust, healthier. They're getting bigger. Uh, you know, you can kind of see them thinning out when I, when I skip a feeding or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um so I was just wondering if you if you find the same thing you're you're increasing the protein. Do you also feed like you you're feeding daily, or uh, what's the situation over there?
1: I like to make sure that they always have food. If if I if I the the tub that I'm using now it's about the size of like a like a shoebox, so maybe maybe like two and a half gallons or so. So I'll make a puck about the size of a quarter, and I'll dump that in. And once that's gone, I might let it sit for a day or two, just because there's going to be some residue, and obviously make sure it hasn't just disintegrated. And then i'll add another one because yeah. think think about it the whole point in growing from egg to tadpole to adult is to do it fast and to get as much nutrition as possible think i mean think about it. it it's the way it goes with any any juvenile animal you want to get nutrition and you want to grow as fast as you can so i like to make sure that they have as much as they could possibly want you know, right. with the, as long as it doesn't compromise the the water quality, and I'm not going to risk losing them from that. I like them to always have. Food. I think that they should always have some source of nutrition in there, because, I mean, again, why why not why not give it to them? You know, they have exposure to so much in a wild situation. You have insects falling, you know, dead insects falling in there. like,
0: food.
1: yeah, even things like, you know, like birds crapping in there. I'm serious. It sounds no, ridiculous, but yeah, yeah, all that stuff that. That's protein <laughs> yeah. yeah
0: yeah no 100 i i even find that some of them uh eat it like they every species i i mean i mean this is obviously but i find like for example mm-hmm. my phylobates vitatus will eat double the amount of food as like the tinctureus mm-hmm. uh it's, it's crazy it's very interesting for sure uh, so to, so to continue on the nutrition topic i recently listened to your last episode um the name of the dude escapes me but on the uh the one that wrote the paper on the cardinoids in the yes yeah very interesting episode by the way Thank you. um so of course it got me thinking about fruit flies and fruit flies and fruit fly nutrition and all of that uh first of all what do you use as your fr- are you using a commercial media like superfly or uh do you make your own
1: i'm I experimented with a lot of things and I didn't notice a tremendous amount of difference in productivity. My issues of productivity were more seasonal when it got really dry in my house. That's when my productivity suffered. And, you know, originally I thought it was the media type and I tried varying things around. I use kind of a hybrid media. I make my own, but I add repashy to it. And sometimes I will just, sometimes I'll make a couple of cultures that are just nothing but repashy. And sometimes I'll make cultures that are my own media. And then sometimes I make a third type of culture, which is actually just like a straight sweet potato or a sweet, uh, like a straight banana. Um, I end, what I ended up thinking, when I, I, I was having a conversation with somebody. This is before this is before I talked to Matt, and I was thinking about. Actually, I'm sorry. No, let me back that up even further. I went to American Frog Day here in New York. I went there in October of uh, this past year, 2021, and one of the speakers was talking about what these things eat in the wild and what kind of insects they're eating. So feeding a prepared diet that is nutritionally complete is great. And that's very important. And there's no substitute for that. My thought process was, well, if they're feeding on these insects, there's going to be little seasonal treats and things like that. Meaning they might find, you know, like a rotten yam or a rotten banana that's covered with fruit flies. And all right, those fruit flies are going to be drawing that, that nutrition up from whatever that source is. So every so often what I'll do is I'll take some powdered sweet potato and some powdered banana, cut it with a little bit of media, mix it up, and then just you know let it cool off, and I'll stick maybe 100 to 200 flies in there. I'll let them eat that for a couple of days. Then I'll dust them and feed them off. My rationale is that they're getting something a little bit different than just a prepared diet because, yes, it's, it's, it's whole. It, it's Rapashi's products are great. But there has to be, in my opinion, a little bit of variation from time to time. Because remember, I mean, you and I aren't going to eat a complete diet every single day. Right. You know what I mean? Like I, I, I ate garbage all day today. You know what I mean? I'm not gonna I'm not gonna die from a vitamin C deficiency because I didn't have orange juice today. But at some point, I'm gonna get it. So right. my my thought process was just to try and vary the diet as much as we can. Hopefully. You know, hopefully that it will be able to provide a more like holistic, nutritious diet in the in the long term. But again, I wouldn't solely substitute that for a regular, um, standardized, you know, media that you would normally use. That that's nutritionally as complete as possible.
0: No, for sure. And then, um, so in the paper, they're talking about how <clears throat> uh adding minerals and carotenoids to the media benefited or just increased the reproduction in Ufago primiliu. Mm-hmm. Correct. Do you think that this is possibly something that can be translated over to other frogs like Ranitomeya uh um, the other uh, species, or do you think this is?
1: I I don't see any reason why not to the 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 scope and the scope of the paper was um it, it was focused primarily on Pamilio and obviously I I don't have anything to support yes or no whether it it would it apply in the same way to other species. Sure. what what we do know is that organisms need carotenoids to to function for a number of processes. so uh do I supplement my other frogs with a carotenoid supplement? yeah, I do i um I, I like to vary my supplementation because, like I said, you you know, yes, giving a regular supplement every single day is good, but there are certain times where you know they're they're not going to get a, a meal that's going to be very, very high in one content. It might be higher in one than the other. So in the end, the law of averages, things will hopefully pan out. So I'll supplement with carotenoids maybe like once a week. You know, I don't, I don't double up. Like I won't, I won't dust them with calcium plus that day. I'll just dust them with like super pig. And then, you know, the next day I'll do calcium plus or the next, or like maybe like three weeks later, I'll do a vitamin a, but I mean, vitamin a is more of a dart frog or frog type of thing. But, um, I don't see anything wrong with it. It's something that they're going to need in the wild anyway. I mean, particularly considering we, I, I have spoken to a lot of people and no one can give me a definitive list from A to Z in terms of what these things eat in the wild. Cause they eat everything. They, eat, they, okay. they, they eat, uh, they eat a lot of my, well, I, I take that back. I'm sorry. Um, when I had Juan Santos on Juan's Juan's incredible source of information about dog frogs, because he's essentially done nothing other than study them in the wild and whatnot. And their diet is so varied that it's really hard to tell what nutrients, what minerals, what trace elements they are taking in because they're taking in so much. So I don't really see any issue in varying it as long as you're able to accomplish the, you know, the, the, the basic supplementation that we know that they need. Cause I mean, for all intents and purposes, fruit flies are not by any means a perfect feeder. You know, they're not getting the mites. They're not getting the little arachnids. They're not getting the little worms and the nematodes and the, or, or they're not eating any of that in captivity. So, we're beholden to them to hopefully supplement them as best as we can to at least somewhat recreate the nutritional content that they get in the wild, even though we can't offer them the same prey items.
0: I a hundred percent agree with that. And, and, and then uh, that also brings up a good, like you bring up a good point about uh, the fruit flies themselves. Have you tried any other forms of feeders? So like bean weevils or um, are you only, uh, first of all, are you using melzins? or uh, Melanogaster and Hydeii?
1: I have, um, uh, right now, uh, it's funny because, a, a year or two ago, I swore off Hydeii entirely and I'm just doing Melanogaster. I just my did issue, that last month. Yeah. <laughs> my, my issue with Melanogaster is just that they're so small. It takes twice as many to feed a big frog. So one of the reasons why I like Phyllobates and a lot of people, I don't think realize that Phyllobates can be a great beginner species. And this is why is Phyllobates will eat anything. You know what I mean? They're, they're, they're not as finicky as, as the tanks. I find it's funny because my large tanks, they're the, the, the finny finnick, yeah, the most finicky when it comes <laughs> to size, even my Pippita babies will eat like they'll take Both on size. like, yeah, they'll yeah, take yeah. on eighth and eight and uh, eighth inch crickets, yeah. but the filer they'll just knock down anything. So if I was to feed them, nothing but melanogaster, I'd be wiping out my cultures like crazy, but Heidi, I Heidi is great. If you know, if once you get the timing down, but again, they don't produce as consistently. You get that boom and bust. So if you make a batch of cultures, especially with me this time of year when it's really dry, I don't get the same productivity. And I might go back to melanogaster just to get that uh, quicker life cycle because by the time the Heidi is starting to really produce, the media is dried out more so than it would have in the summer or the spring when it's a little bit more moist in here. So at least with the melanogaster, you can get them out in like two weeks as opposed to three. But Again, it's it's like it's you really can't go wrong. It's it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. But right now, I'm only working with high di. What, what about what about you? What's your preference?
0: Uh, I well, like I said a month ago, I also swore off high di. They just um, they they find their way all over the house somehow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm currently only using mel's, but I just recently bought a culture of uh, Turkish gliders. Mm-hmm. I don't know what they're where they stand for uh, nutritional nutritional content, but like. If they're like better than males or, or worse than them, I, I don't know. But uh, I figured some form of variety. So I'm going to try to work with the two of them. Um, I probably will end up having to get back into high DI at some point because like you said, they, uh, it just, it's, it's taking too many to, to, to feed the larger frogs. But I've also been interested in trying um, bean weevils and just trying to get more of a variety into the, into the frogs. But I, I, I haven't been able to find any weevils uh, experience with, with them to ask about them.
1: I tried. I tried the bean beetles. I didn't really. To be honest, it was more of an aggra- It was more aggravating than than it was worth. Yeah, okay. yeah. They 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 had a kind of a long life cycle, and they just the frogs didn't really seem very interested in them either. You know, it was pain. They they came in a little cup with like a toilet paper tube in it, and you'd flick the tube, <laughs> and they would just disappear into the substrate. The frogs looked at me like, "Where are my like Where are Ooh, my flies? Where
0: is the food?" <laughs> yeah,
1: it wasn't really that that rewarding. <laughs> yeah. As an okay. alternative, I. I don't like, I don't like pinhead crickets at all because you buy a thousand of them. They show up half of them are dead. And the other ones are just like, um, but banded crickets, I think are a great supplemental food supply or even a primary food supply for like the larger ones. Like my phyllobates. babies. I try not to even feed them fruit flies at all. I try to feed them uh, banded banded crickets. Yeah. I'll get like, I get like maybe like a thousand quarter inch banded crickets and my adult, my terrible my bicolors, they they'll, they'll just, they'll hammer them. They're that's, they'll eat nothing but that, which is good because it's a more filling meal for a larger frog and.
0: You can gut a little better.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it's interesting you bring that up. Like I'm always curious about how much. I'm always curious about how much nutrition and a, a feeder animal gets from its diet and how, well, that the, the the predator actually is able to make use that of that. Great. So, I like to feed the feeders a variety of things. I, I like to make sure that they're they're healthy, that they have as much intake that's that's varied. Like I'll gut load with, um, I'll use like carrots. I'll use um, kale. I'll use oats, um, dandelion dandelion grains. They're hard to find though. Um, collard grains go over pretty well. Just to vary the diet, and I mean, even though even some of those foods in themselves have carotenoids in them, like sweet potatoes have carotenoids in them. Um, What else? Like even kale has carotenoids in it. Like like bell peppers have carotenoids in them. So I I hope that some of that transfers over into the feeders. And even with the fruit flies, like I said before, about making a kind of like I I guess you could call it a gut load culture out of like the um, powdered sweet potato and powdered banana. Sometimes, what I'll do is I'll just make a culture just with regular media, whether it's for or whatever, and I'll just dump it like 200 flies in there and let them eat that for two or three days. Because, think about it if you're pulling them out of a culture where there's maggots and this fly crap and like everything, it's just it's nasty in there. Yeah. You have to ask yourself, well, how much have the maggots pulled out of that in terms of nutrition? I mean, are these flies even eating anything at that point? Right? You know what I mean? So, give them something fresh. Let, let them eat that. Let them eat that fresh culture and then feed them off a couple of couple of days after hopefully they're more nutritionally complete. I, I can't say. I wish I could say 100%, but you know, that's that's for someone to figure out scientifically, which is hard, but now at least with the you know, with the frog hobby being what it is, I'm sure there's somebody out there who has an interest in um figuring out how like what the nutritional content of different different uh, dar frog feeders.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean they did it or to, I don't know how how accurate this is, but they did do it for uh, reptiles where they kinda did the different for different mm-hmm. worms and then uh compared it to crickets and doobie roaches and all that. But um there's also the ripashi uh if you're considering gut load and crickets, there's also the ripashi gutload that supposedly kills them in two days, but if you feed mm-hmm. them it forty uh, twenty-four hours or forty-eight hours before uh feeding them, it it supposedly really fills them up. Um, I recently bought a bottle. I, I'm still trying it out, so I don't really have any like proper re- review review to give you on it. But it seems like it's it's doing the job.
1: I've I've never used it. I just generally use like, you know, if 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 I'm cutting up a zucchini, like just the end, you. the yeah. end, the two ends, I'll I'll give that to the insects. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I keep I keep a dubia colony too. I forgot to okay. mention that I keep a colony yeah. of dubia roaches that I've had for. I don't know, eight years. That's awesome. And those off those will feed off too as well. Again, I, I but I like them to have a complete diet. I, I don't necessarily use one different thing. I'll vary it up. But um, the interesting thing about Rapashi products, and not a lot of people know this, is that a, a lot of those products were actually designed for frog production. So I, I don't I don't want to quote anything that Alan has said. I've heard him do other interviews where okay. he discussed it. So. The general consensus is, and again, I don't I don't want to misquote anyone or anything like that, but a lot of the Repashy products were actually designed for tadpole production, specifically like species like Whites tree frogs. Mm-hmm. So the idea was to get tadpole development to, to go over very well. The problem is not a lot of people were breeding frogs at home. So those products I'm going to assume had to be marketed to a different audience, like like fish, for example. Right. So people who have fish that are detritivores would need a similar, you know, similar food to source. It's, yeah. yeah, but it's—I don't think it's a coincidence that like rapashi's products work so well with frogs because they were designed, they were designed for frogs. Yeah, I mean, and awesome. they just happen to translate well into into other into other niches. But again, I, I don't want to—I don't want to quote or, or misquote anybody on that. But I've heard a couple of interviews that Alan rapashi did, and just the whole process that went behind it. So again, if if I'm wrong, I. I I apologize, but that was uh, what I, that was what I heard in the interview.
0: What, what you said makes a lot of sense though. You're right. It's uh they're a big hit with all, um, uh, with all frog products. Actually, I just saw the reflection of this one sec. Sure. <clears throat> Since I have them right here, I'll show you. Um, these are other two, uh, the other two products that I use with, uh, okay. my tadpoles. Well, I don't know if you can see that. Cool. Well, you're in That's- Canada, right? yes
1: okay i don't know if you guys have the same see i've never seen those before so i don't know if you guys have the same market up there i
0: they're fish foods
1: yeah i mean from what i understand i don't really i mean i I know there's a lot of content creators from canada but do you guys have the same resources for sale up there as as we would have here in the u.s because i mean even here in the u.s like it's you're not going to walk into a reptile store and find like morning wood or stolen green on the shelf all the time it's kind of rare like i had to order mine online do you guys do you have problems getting the same supplements over there in canada or uh, are you
0: in first of all are you in new york like Man- yes uh, new
1: york no i'm not in manhattan new york i live out i live outside of new york city but
0: okay um i'm trying to think because i was i was i'll try to remember i visited a couple of months ago um and i stopped at a little store in manhattan somewhere and they had mm. all the products so i don't know if that might be easier for you or not but i'll try to remember the name of the store um it's products are interesting here it's it's some products are a lot easier to get not i wouldn't say easier to get just easy to get like rapashi uh all the all of those products you just mentioned the morning wood the soil and green the uh bottom scratcher all of those uh my local reptile store um shout out here to jungle um <laughs> has <laughs> carries them all uh but like for example some of the more dart frog specific i don't know if you've ever um tried any of these brands but i've uh, there's one ran Ranarium or yes. um yes De- yep. dendro something or- i think it's
1: dendro care yeah
0: dendro yeah. we i i have not been able to find those anywhere yet
1: that's um, interesting yeah i yeah. i i don't i've never used them personally i know that they're not i don't then i don't think that they're for sale on the same scale that say like rapaci products would be because rapaci has like the the big box stores yeah. I, I don't know i'm sure if you reached out to whoever makes the products that that person will probably be able to guide you accordingly but yeah. i'm a, I'm always curious what happens in canada because yeah from what i understand the the exotics hobby the hobby you want to call it i mean here in the us it's 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 huge and it's funny because i woke up one morning and i i was like i looked around i'm like this is huge <laughs> i'm like so many people have lizards and snakes and frogs and stuff like that i'm like it wasn't like this when i was a kid you know like yeah. when i got more like back into the hobby i'm like when I'm watching YouTube, I'm like, my God, I'm like this, this kid, he's like 20 years old and he's got like a hundred different species and half of them I've never seen before. Yeah. So I'm always curious about what it's like in different, you know, in different parts of the world. So yeah. I, mean, I heard, I heard Canada, the herb community in Canada is kind of small compared to the U S but I mean, you tell me if I'm wrong.
0: And no, I, I would definitely agree with that compared to the U S it's much smaller here. And, um, the actual animal prices, like the frog prices and the reptile prices are, I, I from what I'm understanding, uh, are much higher than what you guys have um but i mean it's what we have to work with i guess uh i'm pretty sure it's like most uh canadian herb keepers dreams to move down south
1: <laughs> yeah it's <laughs> i mean Depends, just the weather alone is,
0: is enough right um yeah no sorry were you about to say something
1: no 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 I it's it's the grass is always greener on the other side it's interesting because a lot of americans look up at canada very covetously. And I've, 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 I have a lot of friends up in Canada who are other content creators, and they'll tell yeah. me about what they can and they can't have. And I'm like, Oh, you know what, I'm happy where I am. I'm, it's yeah, exactly. Bad.
0: Yeah, that's, that's another thing. I've, I've discussed this uh, I, uh, with uh, people before on the podcast, but it's um, bylaws are crazy here. There's it's like every city has its own bylaws and here in Ottawa, where I am, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's, it's crazy stuff.
1: What, I think was it Montreal where phyllobates is
0: illegal? I don't think so. Uh, there's one
1: I know. There's one local There's one location up there where I think phyllobates is illegal for being poisonous, but they're not poisonous in captivity. So kind of became like laughable matter. I do you know which city that is.
0: I I don't. I'm gonna have to. I'll look into that and, and get back to you. But I don't think it would be Montreal because they have some of the loosest uh, restrictions. Okay. So, um, I, I I mean I I. I I would assume it would be actually Ontario that would do something like that, but I, I don't think we have any, I mean, I have phylobates, so.
1: Um, Sorry. I didn't mean to, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, no, no problem
0: at all. I'll, I'll, I'll have to look it up and get back to you. Cause that's mm-hmm. just, that's hilarious. Um, all right. So I have, I do have a few more questions for you. Sure. If, if that's okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so on a lot of your episodes, you're, you're um, constantly bringing up very interesting papers and uh, researchers so I asked you a little bit about like frogs and science. How do you find these papers? Um, do you follow specific people that are just releasing this stuff? Or um, how do you go about keeping up with all the latest research to do with frogs?
1: I... I'm i trying to think of the best, the best way to explain it. Um, when I started the show, I, I, let me, let me just back up and I'll, I'll, I'll... I'll answer this as best as I can yeah no. Yeah. When, when I started the show I started the show for a couple of reasons I started it number one because I i during early 2020 here in New York COVID was 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 bad it was it was real scary and I was at home and I was thinking to myself you know what I, I have this time to do something constructive I want to be able to create something that I that I like and podcasts I always had a, a love for podcast But I thought to myself, you know what, like, what am I going to do here? I'm like, all right, I'm really immersed in this whole frog world, but I have questions. There's things that I want to know. There's people that I want to talk to. I want to pick other people's brains. And that was in part why I wanted to to start the show. So when I look for a guest, I look for a couple of different things. I look for something that is either new and unique. I look for something that is well-established, meaning like the, 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 the paper that I did with, um, the excuse me, the episode about the carotenoids, I mean, that paper came out in 2013, right. but it, it had a, a resounding effect on the hobby for, for years in terms of people's understanding of supplementation. And he didn't even know that because he, he wasn't really in the hobby. He did research. So I, I wanted to get him on the show to clarify these things and just to get his take on also how the hobby has received that study so so well. And You know, most of the time, if you look for these people who who write these papers, not all the times, but more often than not, they'll they'll respond because they want to get their research out, and they want they want they appreciate the fact that someone shows an interest. So, I like to find interesting people. I mean, I'll I'll just go online, and I'll spend an hour just googling keywords, frog scientist, Uh, (laughs) Kittridge. I'm serious, and you'll 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 find people. And you look at that person's publications and you read, I'll, I'll read a couple of, pa- I mean, I can't read every paper, but I'll read some of the abstracts. And if I find something interesting, I say to myself, well, look, r- rather than have to read this whole abstract or read this whole paper, let me reach out to this person, have the person come on, explain the research, explain the paper. And there you go. Because I feel like a lot of people don't always have access to this stuff. And it's, it's a lot easier to get it straight from the source. So that's how I source those types of episodes. And I, I reach out to a lot of people. I mean, this is, this is like a constant like a constant thing, you know, what I mean, because you have a lot of people in scientific community who just aren't comfortable doing this, which is which is fine. Sure. I'll get people will say, "Well, I'm not really interested, but I'll refer to you my colleague." And more often than not, like I said, people are interested. So th- that's that part of the show. Like I said, I had this I had this ulterior motive because I, I wanted to learn more. I wanted to know what these things were, and at the same time, I also wanted to fill a gap that wasn't there because, when i started doing this and even till now there were there were no amphibian podcasts there is no, a yeah. there's a lot of reptile podcasts out there and a lot of different types and i i i was inspired by certain by a certain kind of mode or whatnot which i kind of based mine around i just li- i like to keep it high level and i like to have new content as as much as i can and I like to have, to vary it as much as i can too because Look, talking about frogs is great, but if, if I come on and I just talk about dart frogs every week, it's it's not going to be interesting after a while. So sure. I want to be able to shed different angles on it, like doing an episode about batrachotoxin. you know, with a scientist who isn't even a frog person, but he synthesizes the toxin. To me, that's interesting. And I get good Super feedback. From, yeah. I, and I get good f- feedback from the listeners because they seem to enjoy that. Mm-hmm. So. I'm not an expert. I'm not the go-to guy. I just like to think of myself as a custodian of all this information. That's my attitude towards it. But at the same time, I like to do fun episodes. Like I like to do episodes with other hobbyists because at the same I'm, – I'm a hobbyist. I'm not a scientist. I'm not a researcher. I enjoy everything about these things. So I also like to hear other topics as well, like, like vivarium builds. You know, yeah. I, I'll reach out to people. I mean, look, you, you don't need an advanced degree. To, to do vivarium builds. I mean, that's not to discredit the skill that goes into them. But what I mean is you know, anyone who's good at, at building vivariums is welcome to come on the show because, again, I'd like to learn what your techniques are. I'd like yeah. to share some of mine. All that stuff gets into it, goes into it. I like to work with content creators because a lot of us have the same ideas about things and we pick each other's brains. And a lot of those people are also really eager to come out and do, and do the show. 100%. So, there's that. And I also, I'll also vary it a little bit further. I mean, I'll do some non-amphibian content once in a while. I've had Bill strand on from the chameleon Academy. Yeah. Uh, You did the
0: tarantula episode as well.
1: I did the tarantula with Richard Smith and they, again, the both of them, Richard has a podcast and YouTube channel. Bill has his, uh, His um chameleon academy yeah he actually has two shows now he has reptile entrepreneur and he has uh, chameleon academy and he has some new ventures which is bill's bill's amazing bill's like
0: bill's on top of everything (laughs) yeah
1: he's like a a true a true renaissance man he's (laughs) Mm -hmm. he's he's good with everything
0: yeah i would Uh, love to have him on as well
1: i'm sure he'd be interested bill's good with stuff like that and dylan parent dylan dylan is uh yeah Dylan so, does a remarkable job with his show, and I, I, I mean, I know he's younger than me, but I drew a lot of inspiration from from Dylan's show. Likewise, yeah. And um, th- there's a lot, there's a lot of other good podcasts out there. I see a lot of new shows coming out, but um, you know, the amphibian niche needed to be filled, and yeah. I felt like it was a good way to do something productive. And you know, here I am, like seventy something episodes later, and it's 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 doing well, but
0: yeah uh, no for sure when i first started listening to podcasts the the first few that i found were the herpetoculture podcast guys mm-hmm. and then animals at home uh dylan parent and it's before i discovered any anything else and for like a year or so i was just looking for some form of dark frog content and then i gave up on it i was like clearly nobody's making this stuff on here and then maybe like a couple of months later i started hearing about your podcast and i went to check it out and i was like how is he already at episode like 40 something and i I completely missed out on all of this. So it was it's not it was, easy though. It's not, oh, no, it's not I, easy. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. It's, it's uh, a good job. And thank you for filling the niche. Cause it, it was definitely needed. I was well,
1: that's, that. that's kind of you to say, yeah. I, um, I, I appreciate it. Look, I'm, I'm a regular guy. Like I said, I'm not some crazy expert on everything like that, but I, I appreciate the input of guests and I appreciate the input of listeners. And I, I honestly, I'm honored that people enjoy the, enjoy the content as much as they do. I, I yeah. looked at some statistics a while back and this year, the show it, it, it I mean, podcasts, as you know, isn't a huge, you're not going to get it. This, you're not going to get a YouTube audience on a podcast unless yeah. you're like, like Joe Rogan or someone who's like a really like famous podcaster. Um, sure. I mean, I, I you know, what not to in whatever, but I know he's kind of controversial, but, but the point yeah. is it's not you, to get a podcast audience on par with like youtube is not very very common so Mm -hmm. the stats that i looked at though were very encouraging and i just i was i was proud of myself for it because um you know a lot of people seem to be consistently interested in the topics and as long as people are interested i'll continue to give them content
0: yeah I yeah uh looking forward to future episodes for sure thank you um awesome so uh moving on from the frogs and science topic um and Before we, we close everything off here, sure. um, I do want to talk about some of the other frog species you have. Mm-hmm. So you said you have the whites and then the uh mossy frog care. Mm-hmm. Um, do you mind if we touch a little bit on, on, on yeah. those species?
1: No, I, I get sick of talking about dark frogs. Actually.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I awesome. like the species, okay? Awesome. So, um, the whites tree frogs, I've mm-hmm. uh, been here, there's been like uh. I've been reading a lot of arguments recently, or I, would, I don't know, arguments, discussions or debates on um, how wet they really need to be kept. Mm-hmm. So do you have any opinions that do you keep yours a little bit on the drier side? Uh, or do you keep them more like more heavily humid, like closer to dart frogs? Or, or what's your opinion on that?
1: The problem with white's tree frogs is the same problem that you have with certain other species today, like ball pythons, is that they're tolerant of a wide range of conditions. They're tolerant meaning they don't die yeah but should they thriving. be in those, should they be in those conditions not necessarily so you know my dog frogs if i don't have the parameters right they're not going to last very long you know i mean a couple of days if it's too dry in there a couple of days or a week they're going to stress out and they're not going to be there whereas with the white street frog they'll live for a while if they're too wet they'll live for a while if they're too dry and you don't necessarily notice it unless you're really looking for it so i i took my care advice from someone who had worked with them for a really long time was Jay Summers. And um, I had, I had kept them. I'd kept them moister when I was young. And then I started keeping them drier and drier as time went by. And then what I ended up doing was like Jay and I were talking and you know, he recommended, he's like, look, he goes, I keep them the same as my um, the um, Phylomedusa savagii, which is the waxy monkeys, because these things bask. They don't live in these, super moist swampy areas i mean the same thing with dart frogs. Dart frogs don't live in a, a swampy soupy mess yeah but i keep like right now i'm keeping mine warmer i have i have a basking spot of like like 95 degrees i mean i have a night drop it gets down to about maybe 68 70 here at night it's got the basking spot you know i supplement i feed well and since i since i've kept him hotter and drier he's just a healthier looking frog. He's more active. He eats better. He has a better feeding response. And it's more consistent with what you'd expect to see them in in, in the wild in Australia because these things will bask. I mean, you don't want to cook okay. them. You don't want to roast them constantly. But I, I see a lot of people fall into this, this pattern where it's a one size fits all approach. And I think that that's the attitude with the frog hobby that has to change is because you can't keep all frogs the same. And that's a vestige from when I started out in the hobby, because people thought that every frog had to be kept super duper wet because it was a frog. Yeah. Well, no, it doesn't. I mean, yes, many frogs and not all of them have lives that are partially aquatic. They have, you know, they lay eggs in the water, the tadpoles develop and they emerge on land. But it, again, it, it's, they, they don't, they don't live the same way as, as every other frog species. You know what I mean? I would never keep them the way I keep my mossy frogs. I keep my mossy frogs around 68 degrees in a palletarium with, with no ground feature. My white street frog, I keep it more consistent with what you'd expect where they came from. Warmer drier. You know, it's like a, I guess kind of like a scrub forest type situation. You know, I'll offer some seasonal variation. I mean, I'll let it, I'll let it get a little bit moisture in there from time to time, but I've noticed mine to be healthier with a warmer, drier climb than with the, um, with the cooler and wetter. So I think that that's where a lot of people fall into mistakes is they, they worry too much. You know what I mean? You think if I don't like, well, if I don't go uh, even though the, the, the the idea is not necessarily correct. If it's been around for a long time, people still go with it. You know what I mean? So you you have to constantly reevaluate your husbandry. You know, I reevaluate mine. You know, if I'm curious, if I'm keeping an animal correctly or not, I I make it my business to find out. And if I'm doing something wrong, even if I've been doing it for 20 years, I want to change it, you know? So, like I said, I, I spoke with Jay. He recommended doing this. Well, he's worked, with, he's worked with White Street Frogs for 30 years. He's bred thousands and thousands of them. I took his advice, and the animal seems healthier. You know what I mean? So you have to have some understanding that there are going to be people who are going to know better than you. And White Street Frogs are a controversial topic because, again, people people have ideas about what's best for them based on what they hear from somebody else. And it just depends on what that other person said, and unfortunately, yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of information out there that's just outdated, and yeah. that 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 just needs to change. But
0: okay, and then are you leaving like a water bowl with them, kind of to give them the option of hydrating yourself yes. at some point? Yeah, or, yeah.
1: Okay. I'm a big believer in options. I, I believe that you should. In, in any vivarium, any captive situation, an animal should have choices. and I don't mean choices to go live, like, a long, fruitful life or, like, to go out and play the lotto. I mean, they should have choices. They should be able to move from a warmer area to a cooler area. They should be able to access water. They, they need all that stuff. So, yes, I, I, I keep a water bowl in there. I keep. I, I just use leaf litter as substrate and um, over just a little bit of ABG mix because I have ABG mix, like, everywhere here. It's, like, the most common substance in my house. And, if, you know, full-screen top with a lot of ventilation, Um, some people like to use UVB, this particular frog, I UVB is is a strange topic and it's, 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 there are, there are people who could do the topic better justice than I could. Um, like John court, John Courtney Smith from Arcadia could literally wrote the book about UV. So I don't, I don't really want to get too into that because there are people who know much more about that than I would, but. Sure. uh i ha- i do give i do give them a little bit of uvb here and there i do because in the wild they would naturally bask they would be exposed to some of it do i park a uvb bu- a uvb bulb bulb excuse me <laughs> a uvb or nuva bulb over the top of the enclosure and just leave it there no i don't it's 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 infrequent but it's it's it's, it's occasional again just just to have that option
0: there but sure and, and do you do that with your dark frogs as well, or is this just a white sheep
1: frog? No. Um, there's, there's been observations of dark frogs basking in the wild. And, and Alex Menke, when you had Alex on, Alex really nailed it on the head. Yeah. They'll come out and they'll bask for a few minutes, and you might put it. I know people have put a temp gun on them out, out there in Costa Rica. They'll put a temp gun right on that frog, and it'll say 110, 120 degrees. But the thing is that frog can leave. You know what I mean? It can go back into the leaf litter. It can go back under a, a bromeliad. It can get out of there. So, do I think that UVB exposure is a good or a bad thing? It's, to my knowledge and my experience, it's not necessary for dark frogs. Not necessary. But can it be beneficial? I would imagine probably yes, because everything everything in life has some relationship with the sun. So, even though a lot of the light gets diluted from the forest, you know, from the canopy down. It depends on the species, like Pamelia, for example, you can p- find Pamelia a hundred feet up in the air, you know, uh, well, not in up in the air, but like flying, <laughs> but like you can find <laughs> that'd be, that'd be riding on a
0: bird's back. Yeah.
1: You, but you could find them a hundred feet up a tree looking for a Pamelia to deposit eggs in this, The atmosphere up there going to be very, very different than it is on the forest floor. But I, I don't, a lot of people are really quick to hop on the UVB, the UVB bandwagon because a lot of manufacturers have put it in people's heads that you have to do it for every single right. species. And again, it's that one size fits all approach. I mean, there's species of blind salamander that live in caves that never see the sun, you know? And I said, everything has a relationship with the sun, but I, I didn't mean that like everything needs the sun, everything either needs it or doesn't need it to a different extent. Yeah. So not every living thing needs UV exposure. Not every living thing. Is it pro- is it beneficial in some ways? It probably is. It probably is. I can't quantify it though. And to my knowledge, there hasn't been enough objective research with dart frogs, per se, and UVB that we can get a straight answer. With other species that are not amphibians, like chameleons and whatnot, we have more of a working understanding in terms of what they need. Um, Again.
0: And easier to measure and easier to...
1: Exactly, exactly. So I, I don't like to make assertions about things that I can't objectively quantify. So my opinion is it's probably not bad in moderation, you know, within region, but... I don't see any benefit in putting UVB or UVA over a, over a dart frog tank, not going to help the plants UV. That's another misconception is ultraviolet radiation does not help plant growth. So yeah, I don't need it for that.
0: That that's true. Okay. Awesome. Um, and then you also mentioned a couple of minutes ago that you keep your mossy tree frogs in like a paludarium kind of setup. Do you want to maybe run through the setup? Correct.
1: Um, I've had these guys for a couple of years and, It's probably the most overgrown and unappealing (laughs) vivarium I have, but I took an old 20, I don't even know if they make this anymore. It's an old 20 gallon high, excuse me, 29 gallon aquarium that I bought at a garage sale in 2002 for about $15. Um, Best purchases. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Garage, yeah. Garage sale aquariums are the best. Um, I just kind of simulated where they would normally live in um i think it's like northern vietnam on the border of china just you know underneath just like a kind of like a drip wall i made the background out of a big hunk of cork bark and some polyurethane foam and i just ran a little drip wall feature up in there and just planted it and they kind of they stay they're se- they're semi-aquatic you know they're not tree frogs despite what people say they're semi-aquatic and they just kind of hang around underneath this little ledge and they're they're happy i keep them around 68 my frog rooms in the basement. So I have a cooler corner. That's where I keep them. They're happy. I feed them a couple of times a week and I just enjoy them when they come out. You know, that's the nice thing about a nocturnal species is you don't, especially something that's cryptic colored. They're yeah. hard to find. <laughs> they're hard to yeah. see in there when it's really well planted, but that's how I keep them. Um,
0: do you ever see I've them ne- swim, use the water?
1: Yeah. They go right into that yeah. water. Yeah. Another, another interesting thing that they do is if you do get one in your hand, they will kind of like, I, I don't remember. It's, it's not the, like the Uncan response is when newts and salamanders will kind of like roll their tail up over their body. The fire belly toads do that. This is different. It's, I don't exactly know what it's called, but I'm sure there's a name for it. They'll sort of roll up into a ball and they kind yeah. of like play dead. And then if you just keep the frog in your hand or on a, if you want to, photo, that's, a, that's why they're hard to photograph it. Cause as soon as you go to move one, they just roll up into this ball and you got to wait like 15 minutes for them to come out of it. But yeah, they'll, they'll dive down into that water and they'll just, they'll, they'll book through it. Um, I don't have a, I don't even have like a terrestrial feature in that. It's just some river stone and cork bark and a lot of, and a lot of plants. And that's basically it. They're really easy to keep. It's just that they're not as bold as some of the other species, but um, you know, uh, Stefania Fachi, the dar frog queen, Stefania was making YouTube videos for a while and her YouTube videos were great. She has some good videos about mossy frog care. So Yeah. um, yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple, but check out some of Stefania's videos. Because she she successfully bred them, but another thing about breeding them is they pretty much do it themselves. But you got to get a male and a female.
0: And you don't different. know if the difference is sex. And yeah.
1: It's they're 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 skewed. So they're like they're they're Towards sexual.
0: females or
1: I believe they're skewed towards males. I I I'm gonna have a conversation with someone because it's it's been a long time since I've talked with someone about it, and it's skewed one way or another based on the 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 temperature. And I believe that the temperature difference is only like a couple of degrees. But from what I understand, and my experience has been, it's hard to get a male and a female together. If you do, you'll probably have success. And from what I understand, they're pretty easy to breed. But um, again, it's just getting that pair or that trio or that group is, is, it's a coveted thing. So right now I don't, I don't have it. It's just, it's, it's not on my list of priorities to to try and get a breeding group out of them because there's enough people that are doing it already with success. They don't know what it really needs, mine.
0: That is that is super cool. They're um uh, even if they're cryptic, they're definitely a very cool species that I've uh they're,
1: they're beautiful. Yeah, everything is,
0: into them multiple times.
1: There it's it, I mean again, if if your vivarium is really, really overplanted and dense, you're not really gonna see them. But mm. when you do, it's very, very rewarding. And they make if you can get a camera in there on them without moving them out, they're very, very photogenic. I, I've gotten some really good pictures of mine. It's just that if you take them out and you want to photograph them in a controlled situation then they can be a little bit tricky but when you do see them they're really pretty i I like that i like animals that you don't see i like when they come out occasionally like like the the tarantulas i like when i'll come down here and it's dark i mean i go to bed pretty early but i'll come out here after lights out and everything's out and to me it's that's really enjoyable because you get to see this whole other world that just disappears during the day but and they call too they have this really sweet call it sounds kind of just like a just like a like a short little chirp and they have this ability to almost throw their voices so i'll walk downstairs and it'll sound like one is like right near me i don't know how they do it but it'll sound like there's one behind me i'm like wait a minute how is this happening and then wait. you know yeah i'm yeah i'm serious you you get them and listen to them call they'll call like right after lights out and then they'll call during the night and sometimes early in the morning and you'll swear that there's like one like on your shoulder
0: i don't know how they do it but they that's do. crazy yeah maybe bouncing off the walls or I, I don't know, like 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 echolocation like bats. I, I don't know. That's just nothing surprises <laughs>
1: me anymore. Nothing surprises me.
0: That is awesome. Well, okay. Uh, I think I'm about out of questions. Uh, I want to say, then thank you so much for coming on. First of all, uh, can you let everybody know where they can uh, first of all find the podcast and then find you?
1: Sure. Um, the The best place to find the podcast would be Apple Podcast or Spotify. This the show was I publish every I generally publish every Friday so you can expect a new episode every Friday. Uh, If you Google Amphibicast, you'll be able to find the Buzzsprout site, which is a site that I host on that will have all the episodes on it. But any any podcast player, you should be able to find it pretty easily. And I I don't have I don't have a website up as of yet, although I, I am looking to convert some of the episodes to another media. I'm considering converting some of the audio to YouTube, but I'm yeah, not quite sure. I'm not quite sure I want to do that because honestly, I mean, I'm actually a pretty camera shy person, so I don't do video of my own. I mean, I'm happy to do stuff like this with you. I mean, thank you for thank you for having me. By the way, I appreciate it. But
0: thank you for coming um, on. Seriously,
1: I'm yeah. more of an audio person, so that's how you, that's how you're going to find me. And uh, you can follow me on Instagram at Amphibicast. That's the only social media platform that I have because, like I said, I'm not much of a social media person.
0: No, it's awesome. It's 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 the one that matters the most uh, as far as I'm concerned. So uh, you're definitely in the right place. (laughs) Yeah, agreed. Uh, Well, Dan, thank you so much once again. Uh, Thank
1: you for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I'll have you. I got to have you on my show one day. We'll talk about how you got into the hobby, too.
0: I would absolutely love to. I'm I'm ready whenever. Uh, Cool. Yeah. And then, yeah. And I am Daffy's Reptiles on Instagram and all social media platforms. I'll leave both mine and Dan's information in the show notes. Um, thank you all for watching and we'll see you next time.